Uh, today is going to be kind of an Easter-esque kind of message uh, because our text today talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We sang about the cross this morning. Jesus Christ actually came, just like all the prophecies said that he would. He actually lived, he actually died, he actually became alive again. He's the only one to have ever done it without assistance. And he was seen alive by hundreds of people who went around the world testifying. We saw him. We saw him alive. We saw him dead. We saw him alive again. Even at the risk of their own persecution, we're going to look at that in our life groups, and some of them their own death. And what's so cool about Christianity compared against all of the other major world religions is that we don't find at the center of Christianity some new morality, some principle, some idea, some philosophy. We find the death and resurrection of a man. We find an event, not an idea. We find an empty tomb. Okay? So, Easter is the only Sunday that some people attend church. Why is that? I don't know. Do they do so to hear the story that we're going to talk about today? Uh, maybe the reason that they don't come back any other Sunday apart from Easter is that the preacher preaches the same message every Easter. <laughs> and they just assume that's the same message he preaches every week. I don't know. But I'll tell you that at the mill, we're, we're moving chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. So if you brought your Bible, you can open it to Romans 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'm going to have to ask you to leave now. Uh, and we're going to, no, I'm, I'm kidding. We'll have it on the screen for you. So if we caught you sleeping uh, today, uh, thinking you were just going to sneak in and out, and maybe catch a sermon on the golden rule uh, or something, you're going to get confronted with an Easter message on the literal death and resurrection of Jesus. And I hope, I hope, if you're new, unacquainted, if you're a questioner, if you're a criticizer, if, if you're a person of logic and reason and science, I hope, I hope, that this message today makes you reconsider your objections. Uh, here is an, an uncommon but helpful definition of, of faith, which is our topic from chapter 5. Faith happens when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. Faith happens when something that we can't explain intersects with, collides with, something that we can't deny. That's faith. So if the resurrection is undeniable, then it ought to change our comfort level with the unexplainable. Does that make sense? So, some of you may proud yourself on doubting. You may proud yourself on being an, an objective, rational thinker. Um, are you willing to doubt your own doubts? Are you willing to go there? 
Are you willing to question yourself? Are you willing to say this question on Jesus, it's so difficult, but, but if he was raised from the dead, I've got I've to hold in, I've got to hold suspect my own suspicions. And by the way, if it makes you feel any better, evidently even the original disciples had unanswered questions. One of the most interesting verses in all of the Gospels, not the most famous or most recognized or most powerful or or emotionally uh, captivating, but one of the most interesting verses is Matthew 28, 17. Right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gathers everybody around him on a hillside. And after being with them for 40 days, Following his resurrection from death, he has talked with them. He has eaten with him, with with uh, them. He showed them his his scars, his nail scars in his hands and feet. He brings them up on the Mount of Olives. He gives them the great commission to carry the gospel until the ends of the earth, and he begins to ascend to heaven. Okay. So at this point, he's floating in the air, and this is what we read. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Does that not speak to the depravity of faith in human beings? They worshipped him, but some doubted. He's just ascended to heaven. But some doubt it. It's like doubted. Joker's been dead for three days, right? Pops up out of the grave, and yet they're doubting. So you're in great company. That's the point I'm making. You're in company with the disciples if you struggle with doubt. Uh, So my hope today is that a number of you might doubt your doubts. And and so I'm going to show you how Paul in Romans establishes basically that the resurrection is the foundation of everything. He would say say elsewhere, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is all moot. It's purposeless. It's meaningless. We might as well just throw our faith in the garbage if the resurrection did not happen. Already... In the first five chapters, Paul has explained that the resurrection proves two things that he himself has not always accepted. First, Romans, when, uh, Romans 1, 4, we've already read this. Um, he, said, he said basically that Jesus was who he said he was. This is the way Paul put it. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection did not make Jesus the Son of God. He was already the Son of God, but it proves that he was the Son of God, and that's what Paul said in Romans 1. Second, in Romans 4, we've read this too by now, in verses 24 and 25, Paul says the resurrection shows us Jesus' death accomplished what it said it would accomplish. He says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection is proof that the cross worked. 
spiritually. The resurrection proves Jesus was who he said he was, and the resurrection proves that Jesus accomplished what he set out to accomplish. So Paul, our author, he hadn't believed any of that until adulthood. God changed his opinion in about two seconds. Do you remember the story? God knocks him off a proverbial horse. He's traveling down the road, blinding light. He himself is, is physically blind. He sees the, 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 the bling of the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes, and there's a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice responds and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So sometimes we kind of just lose the wonder of, of that conversion. But, but think about it this way. In about two minutes, the number one enemy of Christianity became its number one proponent. That's like a cataclysmic event. I mean, he's killing people who profess the name of Jesus. And, and in about two minutes, he changes. In doing so, he walks away from prestige. He walks away from power. He walks away from promise in the Jewish community. He was a rising star. He was the Zion Williamson of, of his day. He was the, the, the young Leonardo DiCaprio of his day. He was the Michael Jackson at the release of Thriller. Do you remember that? Michael was a big to-do then. This was Paul. And instantly, he becomes poor. Instantly, he becomes persecuted. He is subjected to numerous beatings. He spends more time in prison than he does as a free man. And he dies by decapitation. That's our author. That's who's writing this book. What had Paul seen? What had he seen? He'd seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. You say, well, I wish I could see Jesus with my own eyes like Paul did. That would settle my doubts if I were blinded. Fair. Fair. But the point I'm making is we have his testimony. We have it recorded. What else could possibly have caused that change in a man like Paul unless he had seen something very real? One religious historian pointed out that when someone is teaching something they know to be false, and sadly that happens, but when somebody's teaching something they know to be false, you will always find what they are teaching gains them money, power, or respect. When someone's teaching something they know is false, they're after one of those three things, money, power, or respect. And my question to you is, did Paul gain any one of those things? He did not. He lost those things. But he keeps on testifying that Jesus was God. He's convinced that what he's seen is real. And in addition to that, we have a testimony of all the other disciples. Nearly every single one of them was tortured. 
or died a martyr's death. We're going to look at that in detail in our life groups. Not one of them recanted or took back their belief. The idea that this was a crazy myth that sprang up as the disciples are exaggerating Jesus' claim that he's God is crazy. They were sawn in two. They were boiled alive. They were dismembered. The idea that they did this for something that they knew was false is crazy. Chuck Colson, special counsel to the Nixon administration, many, uh, a few years later, uh, turned a believer, a Christian, an author, a pastor, but he was in Nixon's inner circle. When Watergate broke, he and about 10 other men met secretly, fabricated a story, and swore to each other, we will maintain it. We'll tell the lie until we die. Do you know how long it took for each of those men to cave? on the lie that they committed to each other, told to each other in that room? Three weeks. Every one of those grown men caved and told the truth. Do you think that a dozen uneducated fishermen under duress and torture could have kept a secret for 40 years without one single individual caving all the way to death. Or let me ask it this way. How many of you grew up with an older brother? Anybody? Older brother. Okay. What would it take to convince you now that your older brother was actually God the whole time? After Jesus' resurrection, James was convinced. Jesus' younger brother, he became a pastor in Jerusalem, died a martyr's death for his older brother. You think he believed it? He believed it. He said, my life's been changed by the gospel. Jesus died to save sinners. I'm one of them. So Paul says, not only did the resurrection change my mind about Jesus, it changed me. It changed me fundamentally. So chapter 6 begins with a question. Here we are. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay. Paul knows that this is a natural question that the reader is going to have after reading chapter 5 because for five chapters, Paul has been arguing, hey, salvation is not works-based. Salvation is a free gift given to you by God. It is boundless. It is limitless. Why not take advantage of the free gift? Why not continue to sin? You may have heard it called, I heard it called in college, sinning on credit. Why wouldn't we sin on credit, he's asking. 
Jesus is going to pay the bill anyway. It's set to auto pay. Why not just keep charging frivolously? We have an unlimited balance. Just run amok. Forgiveness is greater. Jesus is going to take care of us. Paul says, if that's a question you're asking, and then he answers what he anticipates to be the reader's question, he says, by no means. Exclamation mark. Now that sounds even sanitized. By no means. If we are mad at our spouse or our child or our coworker, we don't say by no means to drive our point home, do we? It's not the way we put it, okay? Some of us uh, say simply no. Others of us, and you know who I'm talking about, have this deluxe two-word edition. Right? This is effectively the Apostle Paul's deluxe two-word edition of saying no. It's the strongest language he could possibly use. How, he continues, can we who died to sin still live in it? What does he mean by died to sin? We have to define that. Certainly, it doesn't mean that we would have lost all interest in sin. Or even that we're slowly moving away from sin. And there's a couple reasons we know that. First, the word died is past tense. We know that we died to sin. He's saying we're already dead to sin. We're already dead to sin. It's not something happening to us. It's something that's already happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so second, in chapter 7, Paul will explain that the Christian can indeed still be tempted and even lulled into sin's power. So then, if that's true, what did he mean by died to sin? Verse 3, he tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we accept Jesus, we die to sin in two ways. First, Paul's saying we renounce sin once and for all. The picture of this, Paul says, is Christian baptism. That's the object lesson. That's the metaphor, which is one of the questions I, I, I ask, which is why, excuse me, one of the questions we ask people when we baptize them is, will you follow Jesus forever? Do you denounce sin? Uh, repentance is not temporary. It's a condition of the, of the heart. Repentance is, is not only a change of mind. Repentance is, is ongoing, and it's, it's an about face against our sin. And, and so when we put you under the water, symbolically, we're showing you are clean by the grace of God. You've renounced the sin in your life. And if you didn't renounce sin at your conversion, it's not a legitimate conversion. Surely by now, you know, simply saying a prayer does not save you. 
Surely by now, you know, going to church does not save you. Going to McDonald's does not make you a double quarter pounder with extra cheese, less the onions. It doesn't work that way. And so are you sorry, Paul's saying, for your sins? And if you are sorry for your sins, there's great hope for you in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Second, he's saying we are dead to sin, means that through his resurrection, Christ has destroyed the reign of sin in our lives. When we accept Jesus, Jesus pours the power of the resurrection in our hearts. And again, this is pictured in baptism. You go under the water, you're showing you're buried with Jesus. You come out, you're showing his life has become yours. So we have access to the power of the resurrection of Jesus over sin. Romans 1.5, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall surely or certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Now united, how many of you are plant people? Anybody? couple green thumbs, two of you. Okay. It's hard to be a green thumb in Wisconsin, isn't it? It stays cold here most of the time. Nonetheless, this is a horticultural term. United. Like where you take the branches off of one tree and you graft them into another tree. When you when you accept Jesus Christ, Paul's saying the Spirit takes the dead branch of your life and grafts it into Christ's living root, and his new life starts flowing into you. So follow the logic. If you've renounced sin, indicated by baptism, and if its dominion over you was broken by the power of the resurrection, how will you willfully continue to practice it? That's what Paul's asking. If we willfully continue to practice sin, that means we're either insincere in our repentance or God's resurrection power isn't flowing through us. And Paul asks, how can you encounter something as powerful as the resurrection and not show its effects in your life? Your confession of faith has to be more than words. It has to be more than some ritual that you go through. Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, joining a church, serving at a soup. We, we've, we've seen it all. We've, we, we've been told again and again, again and again, it's about what God has done. And, and the confession of faith is surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and letting him change you. Paul says, I was changed. I received a new life. The resurrection declares then, that death has been defeated. I will stand by this. Death has been defeated. Um, this means guilt has been defeated. This means injustice has been defeated. This means addiction has been, by the glory of God, defeated. Maybe you feel captivated by a certain sin or sins. In the resurrection, God released a power on earth that is his resurrection power 
that destroys, this is what the Bible teaches, the powers of death. I'm not saying it's a quick and easy process. I'm not saying you will not struggle again uh, for the rest of your life. I'm saying that in the resurrection is the promise of ultimate healing and the motivation to get up tomorrow and continue to resist and fight sin. That is given to us by God. And so you may not receive Christ and, and repent of sin today. Listen, as long as you're alive, there is still hope for you. I want you to know that. As long as you're alive. If you're not dead, someone said, God's not done. He's still wooing. He's still pursuing. He's still demonstrating his kindness toward you, his patience toward you. You know what's great about being a Christian? You know what I love about being a Christian? In part, there's lots of other things. We don't need to fear death. Did you know you don't need to fear death? Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, said this, one day you will hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than ever. Than ever. I will simply have changed addresses. The resurrection changes everything. Paul was harsh. Paul was abrasive. Paul was an arrogant bigot. He was even a murderer. But his encounter with Jesus made a man that would consider himself the chief of sinners and a servant of the church. My eyes just ran across Chris Lang. I didn't plan to say this. Chris Lang is a man who I met 10 years ago who helped us hang drywall in this space to build this out. We, we took on a lease for, for this space. It was set, un, it set unoccupied and empty for seven years, and we got to finish it all. And he came and helped hang the drywall because a friend of his was a friend of mine. And I, I won't put words in your mouth, Chris, but I'll, I'll paraphrase. I can't hang around here too much because lightning's going to strike me. There's no way I could attend a Sunday worship. And I have in our archives a video of his dear wife, Robin, and Dylan, who was probably how old, much older is Dylan than Tyler? Two years? who's two years old, and Tyler, who's a baby with an afro, looked like a chia pet in the, in the carrier, sitting out on the sidewalk, giving me a video-recorded pastor appreciation message without Chris. Because he wasn't around. And we prayed for Chris for three years. And, like... Six years into our churches, five years into our church's history, I got to baptize Chris in my pond. And my dad was there 
from North Carolina, and he had met Chris when he was hanging drywall, and he had been praying for Chris. The point I'm not making is that Chris was arrogant, vile, or whatever I said about Paul. The point I'm making is that God can change any human heart. Any human heart. The worst person you know. God can change their heart. Peter. What do we know about Peter? He was a coward. He denied Jesus three times when he was asked if he was associated with him. On one of the occasions, he lied to a teenage girl. How many of you are just inwardly fearful when you're around teenage girls? I mean, they're terrifying, aren't they? Their presence is just overwhelming. Not true, right? He, he recants or denies Jesus in front of a teenage girl, okay? Then, then he encountered the resurrected Jesus. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And by the end, Peter requested that he be crucified, spun upside down, because he didn't consider himself worthy to be hung in the same way as Jesus. Courageous. Think of how many people John had upset before encounter. He was vengeful. And yet he pins one of the most tender, beloved gospel versions. Several of the prominent women in the early church had scandalous past. Some of them had been oppressed and, and, and abused, and some were prostitutes, and others were demon-possessed, and as were many of the men. But their encounters with Jesus made them amazing, virtuous, holy, God-fearing women of beauty, of strength, and now speaking to us through a 2,000-year-old text on Sunday, February 16th, 2020, the Apostle Paul is saying, Jesus can change you too. The power of a man who died was in the ground for a part of three days and then lived again can change you too. I was in a conversation with a banker this week. I ain't going to give you the details of that conversation. But I felt the spirit of God rising up in me. I felt the resurrection power of Christ in me. Taking up for the church. For what we'd accomplished. He changes us. 
I never would have been bold enough to say to a bank president what I said this last week. I had a lender on the in person at 9.30, and I had an appointment with the president at 4.30. God changes us. Has he changed you? Has he given you power? Has he enabled you to defeat your sin? To live like you're resurrected, because we're told we are with him. Father, we love you. You're amazing. Thank you for sending the Son. Thank you that he rose from death. And thank you that we have the same power to defeat sin in our lives and to become like those who were martyred. To be that devoted. To be that convinced. Let it impact how we live, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.